Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us your word in the Bible. Um, thank you so much that we have it in our own language that we can read and understand. And Lord, as we look across this Old Testament book, please teach us the limits of wisdom. Um, Lord, please teach us to trust you more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read uh, Job chapter 1. It's page 402 in NIB. In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of fasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put an edge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has in, is in your power. But on the man in, in himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's son and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the old brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Thanks, Edgar. I think when you get older, you start to notice patterns in life. So there's 42 chapters in the book of Job. That's as many chapters as there are kilometers in a marathon. I don't know if there's any significance in that. Um, As we look at this book... I mean, it's been, you've, you've seen the reading, you've, you've, you've heard what happened to Job. It says a lot about suffering, and as we think about it, we all know the pain of suffering. We all know what it's like to suffer. We've all experienced it, and I reckon the older you get, the more you've experienced it or seen others experience it. The pain of suffering, it's crippling. Everything closes in around. It can become impossible to do the things you have to do hard to get out of bed even and when you find yourselves in the middle of that sort of pain that sort of suffering it's only natural to start asking questions isn't it the big one is why why is God letting this happen why does God allow these kinds of things to happen or maybe you're asking like what have I what have I done what did I do to make God let this happen to me or maybe you just don't get past the just, just why. Maybe that's your question. Suffering hurts. We all know that. And the older you get, I reckon, the more you know it because you can't avoid the pain of suffering. Suffering comes to the wicked and suffering comes to the good. And as you look in this part of Job, you'll see it's, been, it's written in a way that makes it abundantly clear that in this case, Job is a good man and he's suffering. So we're looking at um, the book of Job. The first few verses, it introduces Job as this very, very good man. It's almost an unbelievably good man. He's exceptionally good. So one, verses 1 to 3, if you look at verse 1, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. How much more clear can you make it? This person fears God. He's a good man. He shuns evil. Not only that, but he's blessed in every way. So verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. It goes, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He's got a large family. He's got a happy family. You'll read about them having birthdays together and stuff. He's got everything you could ever want in this world, and he's got all the resources to maintain it, to keep it ticking over, to keep living well. He had everything, and not only that, he's blameless. He fears God. He's right with God. So he's a good man, blameless, upright, had everything, but then, as you heard the reading read to you, everything falls apart in one horrible day. So if you look at verse 14, the messenger comes, Tells him all his oxen have been killed by a raiding party, along with the servants looking after them. It's just one man survives and comes and tells him the news. That would be devastating. But then you look at verse 16, and while that messenger is still speaking, the next comes. 
told him all his sheep and all the servants looking after them have also been killed this time by fire from the sky. And you scratch your head and think, how normal is this? And then while that messenger is still speaking, down in verse 17, Job's told the Chaldeans have come in and carried off his camels, killing the servants that are looking after them. And if it's not enough that he's essentially lost all his wealth, if that's not bad enough, another messenger comes in verse 18 and tells him that his seven sons and three daughters were killed by this freak accident in verse 19. The place got blown down by a wind. Job's world came crashing in around him in the worst way possible, and then it doesn't stop. So in that first round of suffering, Job himself, he's untouched. He comes off unscathed. He's got nothing left to speak of, but he's unscathed. He and his wife are both okay. But then this goes beyond the reading. You come into chapter 2. As you read through chapter 2, this second round of suffering begins. If you look at verse 7 and verse 8, Job gets sick. The greatest man in all the East is basically sitting on a scrap heap, scraping his sores with a piece of pottery. It's a very sorry, sorry sight. He's got nothing left, not even his health. All he's got left is his wife, and then you look down in 2 verse 9, he's not really got her helping him out either. She goes, you might as well curse God and die. So as you look across chapter 1 and into chapter 2, there's no doubt about it, the good man Job he has fully experienced the pain of suffering. He understands what it means to suffer. And as you read his words in chapter 3, you can see how much he feels low, how much he understands suffering. So chapter 3, verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth, cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said, a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Or if you go down to chapter 3, verse 26, he says, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. Job, the good man, experienced suffering. He knows what it means to suffer. And if you put yourself in Job's shoes for a minute, you would be asking questions, wouldn't you? What on earth? Why did, I, why did this have to happen? What did I do? Why, God? The unusual thing about this book of Job is that we as the reader, we know why this happened, because we're told why this happened. But Job doesn't know, and he never finds out. We're told about two, as a reader, we're told about two conversations between God and Satan, two conversations which Job will never know happened. Um, We're told that Job is being tested. So go back to chapter 1 again. In chapter 1, verse 8 to 12, the first of the two conversations between God and Satan recorded for us. So we as the reader, we know exactly what's happening behind the scenes. Verse 8 says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. There's God saying, Look at my servant Job. Um, Then Satan accuses Job of being God's fair-weather friend. You know, there when it's all going good, but not when it's not. Um, Saint basically says, well, you couldn't rely on him if you made life hard for him. So you come to verse 9. Does, God fear God, uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has 
and he will surely curse you to your face. And so God, why we don't know, but God allows Job to be tested. So verse 12, then the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and there it all happens. We know why this is happening to Job. It's happening to Job because God is allowing him to be tested. God's pleased with Job, but Satan, the accuser, accuses God of manufacturing Job's loyalty, saying he's the fair-weather friend. He's only loyal to you because you make life easy for him. First sign of trouble comes and he'll turn around, he'll curse you, God. After that first round of suffering, after Job lost everything, did he curse God? No, he didn't. Um, Have a look at chapter 1, verse 20. Have a look at how Job responds to losing everything he had. Verse 20 of chapter 1. At this, Job got up from, tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job, he's passed the test. But then the second round comes. There's a second conversation between God and Satan. If you you pick it up in chapter 2, which wasn't read for us, chapter 2, verse 4, Satan goes skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. Verse 5, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so things get worse for Job, and you've seen it. He gets sick, and he's on the scrap heap, scraping his sores with pottery in verse 8. Job didn't know about those conversations, did he? He wasn't told that he was being tested by God. He wasn't told that Satan had put the challenge out there to God. Job hasn't got the foggiest idea why this is happening, why he's being tested. All Job knew was that he was living a good life, and then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, his world comes crashing in around him. He's got no idea. And he'll never know not unless God chooses to reveal it to him, not unless God chooses to tell him about the conversations that took place in heaven. And so Job's burning question, you know, why, why is this happening? He won't get answered unless God chooses to tell him. And as you look at it, you think, well, isn't this describing life for us too? Isn't that the way it is for us too? We, we don't have all the answers. We don't know why things happen the way they do. Sometimes, with the benefit of hindsight, you can look back and go, oh, God might have let that happen so that we can make some sense of it, but you can't always. Um, We do know there's Christians that you can grow through the difficult times. We know that God can um, use challenges to cause us to trust him more, but we just don't have all the answers to the whys. We don't have all the details of why God lets certain things happen to us. Back to Job. When he hits rock bottom, um, his friends come to comfort him. So that's a good thing, isn't it? So you come to chapter 2, verse 11. And the friends arrived because they've heard what's happened to Job. 2, verse 11, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Seven days and seven nights just sitting there 
saying nothing, just being there with Job. That's probably the best thing the friends could have done, just to be there with him, just to sympathize in some way. Perhaps that was the best thing they did because once they start opening their mouth, they start hurting Job because they don't know why these things are happening. They're not told about the conversations in heaven. They've got no greater wisdom than Job in this situation. They don't know why these things are happening, are happening, but they keep trying to give answers. They keep trying to explain it. And by trying to give answers when they don't know why, they make assumptions. And when you make assumptions, you go beyond what you know. And much of the rest of the book is a record of their conversations with Job and their attempts to answer the unanswerable question, why is this happening? If you look across um, Job, you may not see much on the screen behind me, but it's long, 42 chapters is the beginning and the, and the end. The, I th the huge chunk of it is these conversations in the box there, these rounds of interactions with the friends. So chapter 3, you read about Job's lament, lamenting the situation he's in. Chapters 4 through to 27, you've got these rounds with his comforters, his friends speaking to him. In the middle, in chapter 28, there's a poem about the search for wisdom. And then in chapter 29 to 31, Job kind of rests his case. One of the friends pipes up again and his contribution just gets ignored. And then in 38, God speaks with a load of questions for Job. And then Job responds in chapter 42. That's the, the shape of it. But when you look at it, the bulk of it is this interaction with these friends, these helpful friends, speaking words of ignorance into Job's pain. Um, let's consider for a little bit Job's friends' contribution to this. Job's friends, they debate with him for ages, about 34 chapters of the book, but they all do pretty much the same thing. And in saying that, yes, I'm oversimplifying it horribly, but they do pretty much the same thing. They overestimate their own grasp of the truth. They misapply the truth that they do know. They make assumptions and close their minds to any alternatives. And in the end, Job's friends end up mis misrepresenting God and they end up misjudging Job. If you were to kind of um, brutally oversimplify it all, um, the friends were guilty of the sound of music heresy. You know the sound of music heresy? Um, that scene where Maria comes back to the Von Trapp family, she's run off to the convent, she finally comes back and the captain um, breaks off his engagement with the Baroness and Maria and the captain, they're finally together and Maria sings that song where she sings, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. There's the heresy. Job's friends, they flip it around. They go, Job, somewhere, maybe in your youth or childhood, you must have done something to deserve this. It's just like Job's friends, except they put a twist on it. You've got to have done something here, Job. Job's friends, in their own way, they look at Job and they think, there's something, there's some unconfessed sin. There's something he needs to deal with. How do they know? Well, Eliphaz, for one, he's got a word of knowledge. So if you look down in chapter 4, verse 12, halfway through the verse, Eliphaz says, a word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it amid quiet, disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood up on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes. I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? 
can a man be more pure than his maker? You hear the accusation, Job, there's something you've done. How does he know? Well, he's had this vision, this dream. We know that the friends are wrong because the reason this is happening is because of the conversations that happen between God and Satan. Um, Job hasn't done anything to deserve this suffering. The book is abundantly clear. He didn't deserve this. God allowed it to happen to test him. So Job's friends, they can't answer the unanswerable question. They can't explain why Job's going through so much suffering because they just don't know. And when they have their best guesses, all they can do is do damage. How does Eliphaz know these things? Well, it's, it's either, either just a dream he had or it's something that he's made up. And I don't need to tell you how much it can hurt when you're in the middle of pain and suffering and people says, well, say to you, you need to pray more. Or they, may, they won't say it in as many words, but between the nice words, you hear the message, you've done something to deserve this. That's so painful to have anyone treat you like that. Eliphaz's word of knowledge, it's nothing but a dream or something he made up. So Job's friends, they don't know why Job's suffering. Um, they would have been better off not guessing because getting it wrong just hurts the person who's suffering more. And getting it wrong also makes God out to be something that he's not. Job's friends simplified God into someone who gives good things to good people like Santa. God's not Santa. They simplified God into this kind of vending machine God. You put good stuff in and good stuff comes out. We don't have a chance to understand why God does the things he does unless he chooses to tell us. So Job's friends, they're not the only ones who get it wrong. They're not the only ones who reduce God to being a Santa. We can do that ourselves, can't we? When we're in the middle of suffering, we can do it to ourselves. We can think about God in that way or we can um, treat other friends that way when they're suffering. In most cases, we're like Job. God hasn't chosen to reveal why these things happen. Life is, in a sense, it's a mystery to us. And so if we try too hard to know why things are happening, well, we'll end up getting it wrong, and getting it wrong will only hurt more. Um, Job's never going to know why he was suffering unless God chooses to tell him. As you keep working your way through the book, you do come to chapter 38 and God speaks. So if you jump ahead to chapter 38, verses 1 to 5, God's speaking. Is he going to tell Job why? No. It goes like this, 38 verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who's this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you shall answer me. Were you, um, where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And on it goes, this, this barrage of questions he can't answer. Notice he, he doesn't... God doesn't choose to answer Job's question of why me. He doesn't choose to explain why these things are happening. Instead, he asks lots of questions of Job that, in effect, put Job in his place as part of this creation. Job um, most likely had the burning question, why? And God never answered that burning question. He never told Job why he was suffering. He never explained that Satan's put, asked to put you to the test. Instead, God fires this multitude of questions at, God, uh, at Job, putting him in his place, as someone who's dependent upon God for everything. God says, in effect, stop telling me how to be fair. Stop telling me how to run this world. And after that barrage of questions, coming ahead to chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, Job finally responds. Chapter 42, verse 1, Then Job replied to the Lord, 
I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I'll question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You could analyze that forever, but there's two things I want to point out. Firstly, verse 5, Job knows God better now than before. He says he's heard God before, but now he's, his eyes have seen him. Through all this pain, through all the, the suffering he's been through, he now, and through all his questions, through all the debating with the friends, he's arrived at a point where he can say, actually, God, I see you more clearly. I understand more clearly. He's learned to trust God more, even when he can't understand why these things are happening. Second thing I think um, we should notice is in verse 6, Job repents. So Job doesn't repent of unconfessed sin, something in his youth or childhood, because there's nothing there. He's not repenting of that. Um, Job's repenting, I think, of his arrogance for, for taking on board what all the friends were saying, to, to, to venture into the area of questioning God. I think that's what he's repenting of. He repents of letting his genuine concern and questions kind of boil over into maybe an anger against God, repenting of all that. Did God care about Job? Well, of course he did. But not in the way that Job may have wanted him to. God didn't answer the question, why? Didn't explain why these things are happening. But God had everything under control and he does care for Job. You keep reading as you take a step back, you can see his control. You can see that the, the pride that God has in Job, the way he talks to Satan about Job, look at my servant Job, he's faultless, he's blameless. And as you come to the end of Job, the book, you'll see that God um, gives Job many of his material possessions back. In fact, more so, blesses him in every way. After it's all said and done, the closing verses of the book paint this picture where Job is given more material wealth than ever before. Yes, God did care about Job, but we're still left asking our questions, aren't we? We look at this book and we think, why? Why did God let that happen to Job? Why did he do that? Why did he never tell Job the reason for his suffering? Was it fair to God, for God to treat Job like that? Well, you might be sitting back looking across and saying, is this even real? Is this Job person made up so that we can learn these lessons? And I think that's the point of Job. The book it poses all these questions it explores the limits of what we can and can't know so as far as old testament wisdom literature goes you go to the book of proverb boil that down to its most basic and proverbs tells us wisdom begins with fearing god treating god as god you fear god that's where wisdom begins you come to ecclesiastes we'll look at it next week trim that back down and it declares that life without god in it is meaningless and then you come to the book of Job and you trim it down. And I think it's exploring the limits of what we can know, the limits of wisdom. The point of the book of Job is that you can't know everything. There's stuff that God doesn't choose to show us. And when you can't see the whole picture, we find ourselves, it, we can find ourselves in, that in, in many ways life is a mystery. Um, and so the wise person, you look through Job, the wise person is the person who can't necessarily explain everything and why it happens but the wise person wants to know God because God's in control. He's sovereign. And the wise person knows that we need to trust God. And so as we look at Job, we think now with our New Testament glasses on, you think, well, if only he had a decent friend who could tell him that. 
what Job really needed more than anything else was not the answer to all his questions, but to know God better and to trust him more. And wouldn't it be nice if he had a friend that could encourage him to do just that? When he was in the middle of his suffering, he could have done with someone who could say, look, God's in control. Just trust him. With your New Testament glasses on, it's not hard to see. Jesus is that one, that friend. So you do the jump across to Hebrews chapter 4. Think about this for a little while. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 goes like this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus understands better than we will ever understand. Jesus understands what it means to suffer. Um, Jesus suffered undeservedly. Jesus, like Job, felt like God had abandoned him. He calls out, my God, my God, why? Um, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. The night that he was betrayed and deserted by all his friends, he pleaded with God, if there's any other way, take this from me. He, he understands fully what it means to suffer. So he's able to sympathize with us when we have these little experiences of suffering. He knows exactly what it's like to suffer. And the book of Hebrews says that he is able to speak to God on our behalf. So when you're there with no words to say, don't know how to respond, Jesus is there. He speaks to God on our behalf. The book of Job shows us that when bad or even good times come, the main question is not why, why is this happening, but how. How can I learn to trust God better? And we know that Jesus is the friend who can help you with that, to help us trust God better. Um, Jesus has also dealt with the whole problem of pain and suffering. He's dealt with sin, taken the sting out of sin. You saw that over the Easter weekend. Um, as Christians, we're looking forward to a world where there is no pain and there is no suffering. But in the meantime, we just press on. We keep trusting. So the book of Job, as you look across it, yeah, it explores the, 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 the limits of our wisdom and should be pointing us back to God to trust him. And with your New Testament perspective, we know that Jesus is the way, that we know God fully, and he's the friend who can help us keep trusting in God. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm aware that when you think about the whole topic of suffering, it brings a lot of things to the surface, so go gently when you're talking over morning tea. Um, be quick to pray with those who need to pray. Let me, let me pray for us together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that we know that you do care for us, even when we're suffering. Um, Lord, we thank you that we know that you care for us because you sent your son, Jesus, to die in our place so that we would be able to spend eternity with you away from the pain and the struggles of this life. Father, thank you that we know that you are in control over everything that happens. And so please forgive us for when we fail to trust you and when we question you in ways which show anger towards you. Lord, we are sorry and we repent. Lord, please help us to learn to trust you even when we don't have the answer to our questions, just like Job. And Father, thank you so much that you sent Jesus so that we would see you clearly and know you better. Lord, please help us in the good times and in the bad times to know you better through Jesus. Please help us too to care for one another when we are struggling. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.